Well, I'm Bill Stevens. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so excited. I'm, I'm so glad to be with you guys today. Um, I get to share an experience that I had, this, the, and, and, uh, and I want to unpack that with you guys today. At 53 years old, I don't have as many of those kind of soul-shaking experiences, um, and I had one this last week that I really want to share with you. Um, Maurice and Chris and I had a chance to go into the Deep South, and we got to, we got to go to some of the, the major places um, that were significant in the heart of the civil rights movement. And, and so we got to see Birmingham and Memphis and Montgomery and Selma and, and, and the, the motel where, where Dr. King was killed and was assassinated. And uh, we, got to, we got to go through so many different um, places in there. It was called the Sankofa journey. That, that word Sankofa is a, is a Ghanaian uh, uh, word. It, it means this. It means, it's a reminder that the past must not be forgotten but should be acknowledged as we move into the future. In other words, Sankofa represents the importance of learning from the past and using that to infer, inform our actions in the future. It's looking back so that we can look ahead. And you guys, I mean, we've been Sankofaing. I don't know if that's a word, but we've been we Sankofa every week. Every week we look back. We look back 2,000 years ago. Every week we do this. And we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then we look today at what does that mean for us today. And then we look tomorrow at what it means for us tomorrow. And it informs us. And it speaks to us. And it inspires us towards something. And so, so we do this all the time. Well, what we did is we, we spent some time on this Sankofa journey looking back and then looking ahead and how that informs racial reconciliation. How that informs racial justice. When I, when I did this, you guys, I felt, I felt the weight when I, when I was there. I felt the weight of coming back to share it. Because I knew that somebody, whenever you do this, somebody is going to come back to you and say, oh, you, you, you went all political on us. But you guys, let me just tell you, please hear this. There was nothing about this experience that I felt was a statement Democrat or Republican. There was nothing about this experience that was a statement of liberal or conservative. There was nothing about it that was, that was a, a, a statement of, of, oh, I see what side you're on. This experience that we got to go through was an experience of humanity. It was a, it was a, it was a human being experience. This is what I wrote in my journal. It was a, it's a human being story of pain and injustice, of evilness and horrible atrocities that many times I wanted to close my eyes to. Of ignorance, sometimes chosen and sometimes not. Lingering issues that remain unresolved today. And yet, a deep-seated hope and reliance on Jesus. When we went through it, I wrote, it was such a dichotomy. Ugliness and beauty, atrocities and heroic action, cowardice and some of the greatest acts of courage that I've ever gotten to study or experience and learn from. It was the combination of helplessness and hopefulness. I recognize that it's a hard one today to, to talk about because, because, you know, Maurice and Chris and I were talking about how sometimes when you come back from a mission trip, you, you, you go and you come back and you felt the feelings and then you, you share it with other people and they're going, well, we weren't there. We didn't feel the feelings. And so it's harder to unpack that. And I pray that God will, will meet us in that as, as we unpack it. 
And so, so I know that that's hard. I know that many of us have different experiences around the, the, the civil rights movement in the 60s. Some of you saw it and were, and were alive when it happened. Some of you have just read it in books or studied it in a history class. You know, some of you are like me where you know some of the, some of the pieces of the civil rights movement, but you didn't quite know any, much about it. You saw a Life, Life magazine picture of something like this, that, that that was the march across the Selma Bridge, and you go, well, that's a big, that was a big deal. I know that was a big deal. I'm not quite sure why they did that, and I'm not quite sure why we have to look at it today, but, or especially in church today. And so you see that, or you see this next one of the, of the, the March on Washington and, and, and Dr. King and his, his I Have a Dream speech, and many of us have heard parts of that I Have a Dream speech. But again, why? Why do we even need to look at it? Why are we looking at this today? Well, you guys, I have no desire today to give you just a history lesson. I don't want this to be a history lesson, but you're going to get some history. I don't want this to be a sociology lesson, but you're going to get some of that too. What I want today is for you to hear that this is a gospel message. This is to to the very heart of the good news of Jesus. This speaks right to the heart of what was in the heart of Jesus. And And so don't be mistaken in, in, in taking it another direction. This is a gospel message today. And, and I'm going to pray that, that right when you, you hear it, there's some that just go, what is he going to talk about? We're going to talk about Jesus and what Jesus cared about. Father, we, we pray that this morning you would, you would walk with us in this and, and where we might want to raise a wall or, or, or put up a barrier or say, I don't know if I need to hear this or ready to walk out of the room. I pray that you would intercept those thoughts that you would, would help us to step closer to you. God, we need to know what, what, what was on, what's on your heart. And we need to follow that. We need to know what's, what makes your heart beat, and we need to step into that. And so help us today, in whatever space we're in, to step into that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Let's sankofa, okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's turn it into a verb. Let's sankofa, but we're going to sankofa not 50 or 60 years ago to, a, to, a, um, to the civil rights movement. Let's go, let's, let's, let's sankofa a couple thousand years ago, back in first century Palestine. Let's, let's go all the way back then and let's look a little bit at Jesus and what, he was, what, he was, uh, what was on his heart back then. One of the things we know was on his heart is he looked out at it at the people and he sees the Roman Empire and he sees the Roman citizens, and he sees the Jewish people, and he sees the Gentile people, and he sees the Samaritan people, and he sees all these people, and there was tons of division that was happening at the time. Very few people were connected and together. They were all separate, and, and so Jesus looks out over them, and just before he was, he was arrested, Jesus, Jesus starts praying, and he prays God. He prays for unity, unity among these people. He prays that they would see each other. He prays that they would know each other's story, that they would take steps closer to each other instead of further away. So Jesus, I mean, it's so interesting of all the things that he would be thinking about just before his arrest, that's what he was thinking about. How, God, how do we get these people to come together? 
When, when, or in a different incident, the, the, the disciples that he was praying and the disciples were listening to him and they said, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And when, when Jesus taught him how to pray, he taught him what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And if, if, for those of you guys that, were, that grew up in the church, you know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we memorized it and we've said it before. But when Jesus prayed that prayer, you guys, this was the, uh, the heart of his heart. If he's going to give us a prayer that we're going to be praying for the next 2,000 years, he's going to give us the heart of his heart. And so he's praying and he says, our Father, our Father, not just mine, but yours as well. The intimacy that I have with the Father is for you as well. And he's going, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's saying, he's saying, consecrated and separated and above all else and any other God that we might want to worship or any other thing that we might want to worship or any other person that we might want to worship, you are above it all. Hallowed be your name. And then he said these words, thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So he looked around at a lot of people that he, and he knew, man, we're living in, this is my kingdom and I'm the God of my kingdom. And he's looking at him, he's going, man, your kingdom come. Father, your kingdom come. And then he said these words, your will be done. Your will. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, he says, God's will is for us to be sanctified, to grow more and more into Christ-likeness. And so... He's saying, your will be done, that we would grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That we would grow more and more into an understanding of the intimacy between Jesus and his Father, and that we would grow into that, to love our God with our heart and soul and mind and strength. And, that, and, that, and if we are growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus, we're loving ourselves the way Jesus loves us, with mercy and forgiveness, with grace. And then we'd love others as Jesus loves them. And we would, we would look to the margins and we'd look to the poor and we'd look to the needy and we'd look to someone that's different than us and we'd step towards them just because that's what Jesus did too. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That we would become more and more like Jesus. And then he said these seven words that are powerful, powerful words on earth as it is in heaven. He knows as it is in heaven. He knows that, you know, if, if we're looking at the characteristics of God and what we see in heaven, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit and Jesus and God are one, you know that that's in heaven. And he's going, if that's what we have in heaven, here's what I want us to aspire to here on earth. That we would experience that, that love and joy and peace and patience on this earth. That if in heaven we're seeing a God that cares deeply for every single person, then on earth we got to care deeply for every single person. If in heaven it's, it's we are looking out for each other, then on earth we got to be looking out for each other. On heaven, in on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is we've got to on earth this thing. 
We're going to unearth it. That's a, that's a powerful, powerful statement for us. Because I think sometimes we say, well, we'll do a little bit of Jesus and eventually in heaven we'll get a lot of Jesus. But he's saying, no, we got to unearth it right now. Unearth it as it is in heaven. Now, now we might say, but what, how do we know what heaven is like so that we can unearth it here? And like I said, it's the characteristics of God. But then we also get glimpses throughout scripture of what that heaven might look like. In fact, John, one of the disciples he, who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote another book. He, he wrote a book called Revelation. And he, got to, he had these visions of what the future might hold, and especially that future in heaven. And he wrote it with massive imagery. And so, so it's really hard for us to understand. I would never say start reading the Bible with Revelation because it is really, really hard to get what you're talking about with the golden winged uh, things that are flying in the air. And I mean, there's some stuff in there that's it's really hard. What in the world does that mean for us today? But every once in a while, in those visions that John had on that island of Patmos, he also wrote some things that were going, now that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear of heaven. And if we're going to unearth this thing, we got to know what he's saying there. Listen to what he says in Revelation chapter 7. He says this, I looked again and I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes and all races and languages. And they were standing dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb and heartily singing salvation to our God on his throne, salvation to the Lamb. His vision was that all tribes and all tongues and all races are standing together, not one standing above another. And we weren't just a bunch, we're not just a bunch of ghostly images that all look the same. But that we get to hold on to, to the, 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 the parts of who we are, our ethnicity, our diversity, we get to hold on to those things, yet we're together, standing together. And worshiping together. And if that's what's happening in heaven, God is saying, I want that on earth too. You guys, this is why this is a gospel message. This is the heart of Jesus. If you press it into something else, we're missing the heart of Jesus. He, this is, we have to on earth this thing. Now, in order to do so, in order to do so, in order to unearth racial justice and racial reconciliation, we have to take every preconceived notion and every pretense and every narrative and every argument to the contrary. We have got to set that right there in front of us. And it's very clear that we have to step towards the vision that John, John has, has for heaven. The love and the unity and the equity of every single person as we stand arm in arm singing to our Father. He's calling us. It's a mandate that we step into it. Now, in order to do so, in spe specific to this subject of race and racial reconciliation, we have to recognize where, what we're bringing. I think that's a first step. What are you bringing into this? Indifference? Passion? Anxiousness? What are you bringing into this conversation? What is your history and your past? As we're stepping towards the stories of somebody else, we have got to step into what's our story. 
For me, I grew up in Spokane, Spokane, Washington. It's, it's very similar to right here in Colorado. There was a percentage of people that were Latino. There was a percentage of people that were Native American, a percentage of people that were, were Korean American. There were a percentage of people that were black or African American. But 90-some percent of the people that were in Spokane were white. And so that's, that was the past that I had. I went to University of Washington, really no different in what I experienced at the University of Washington. But then I had a chance to go to, to Philadelphia and, and work in the projects in Philly for a couple of years. And I, so I got to experience a, a, a different culture in the projects in Philly. You know, I saw some overt racism between where we were living in the projects in Passion Combs and then the, the Italian district that was right across the street. We saw some overt racism there, but we didn't, I didn't quite understand it at all. It was kind of eye-opening to me. We came back from Philadelphia and Jackie and I moved into inner city Seattle. I said, Jackie, we got to do this. And we moved into inner city Seattle and we, li- we lived in the, um, in, in, they're not projects in Seattle, but we li- lived in the, in, the, in the housing in Seattle. Most of the people there were Samoan, and so we were one of the few white people in a mostly Samoan neighborhood. And so I got to learn more about the plight of the urban poor. So I got to, I got to experience that and at the same time develop unbelievable friendships. Some of the best neighbors I've ever had in, my, in all the years of our marriage were right there in the Seward Park Estates in Seattle. But I still didn't, I still didn't fully get it. So this is part of my story, what I'm carrying. I didn't fully get it. Like I said, I saw little bits of racism, but, but I didn't understand that, that racism isn't just prejudice and discrimination, but it's prejudice and discrimination combined with power and, and combined with systems. And when you have systems and power along with, with prejudice and, and discrimination, you have what can be a very, very overt racism. It's why we need to press into power and who's got power. It's why we need to study and learn more about systems and what systems are, are still broken. And you might go, oh, here you go, Bill, you're going too far. We have to step into it. We have to learn and grow in that. That's part of what I, what I brought into this. My family didn't celebrate Black History Month. I didn't know what Juneteenth was. Um, if, if there was anything that we saw, especially in Spokane, that, was, that was, had a, any sort of racial overtones or anything that could be racist, it was an outlier to the normal life. And, and, and that was something you go, well, that's, that's not normal here. It is in the south or it is back east, but it's not normal here. And so you could step away from it. Very similar to, to, to life here in Colorado from the 24 years that Jackie and I have lived here in Colorado. But here's what happens. That's my story. And we each have our story of our experiences and what we each are carrying. And that's what I carry. But when you carry experiences like that, what you don't realize is that you end up finding yourself behind these walls that you start to put up. You find yourself standing behind a wall and saying, okay, this is my experience, and, and, and to go around it and start stepping into something else, it's too uncomfortable. To go around it and step into something else, it doesn't affect me. It affects somebody else, but it doesn't necessarily affect me. So we stand with our experiences, and we get to stay right here behind this wall. And the longer we stand with this experience, and the longer we stay behind the wall, the more bringing it up becomes a friction point for you where you're going, I don't know, I like this. Why are we even talking about it? 
We, we, we stand here and it's too complicated to get into. We stand here and we say, what difference would I make in doing this? We stand here and say, I don't know. And that's easier than knowing. I don't know. And so I'm going to stand here in the I don't know instead of the knowing. My politics say not to enter into it. And you start to conclude there's no need to enter into it. That was a long time ago. And why are you bringing up something from the past? This is the present. So we stand there with our experiences, with this wall that we start to build up. And, and you guys know it and we know it. In fact, some of your uh, uh, tension that you feel is partly because of the wall. You don't want to admit that because our pride would say, uh-uh, I don't have a wall. But that's part of the wall is our pride at this place. In the meantime, there's people standing over here that are saying, yes, I still feel some of the oppression that was felt years and years ago. I still feel it today. In the meantime, over here, people are saying, I still, that some of the pain of the past is still in my present. And I see some of that pain of the past and I know it. There's people here that are saying, I'm still being discriminated against because of the color of my skin. And I'm not talking just, just a, a black person. I am talking about anybody. Growing up in, in, in the Pacific Northwest, it was Native Americans that were the ones that were, the, 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 that, were, that were slammed into that we did see very clearly some of this stuff. And so someone's standing on this side with their story, and we're standing on this side saying, saying I don't know. Why do we even need to get there? And what would I even say with my story standing here? This last week, I had a chance to peek around the wall. What I saw, what we got to experience more than anything was proximity. I, I, we, you're paired with the Sankofa journey with someone um, from a different race. And so me and a guy named Ray from, from Kansas City, the two of us walked through it together. A 60-year-old man, just a great man. We got to walk through all of it together. And, and you know what happened? As I'm going through a museum or I'm going through a, 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 a lynching memorial... As I'm going through those things or a, or a slave safe house, I'm experiencing my story and the stuff that I brought, but Ray's experiencing his story. And what happened is you start leaning into somebody else's story and you start being far more curious about their story than whatever you brought. And now I want to know what's Ray thinking as he's walking through each one of these things. As we go walk up to the, to the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was assassinated, what's Ray thinking in that moment? See, what happens there is you step totally into somebody else's story and now we are starting to do something. Even in the uncomfortable conversations, even in places where I told Ray right off the bat, I think I'm going to offend you at times in this week. We're stepping into somebody else's story instead of stand behind this wall. But the problem with this week is that I knew I could always come back to Colorado when it was done and get back here again. And get comfortable right here again. And go, thank God we got Mo that's doing racial reconciliation in our church. I'm going to get comfortable right here. I know that that's there. But Jesus is saying, step around the wall. Jesus is saying, unearth this thing. We have to 
on earth this thing. Instead, in, in fact, listen to what Paul says. Paul starts writing in Ephesians chapter 2. He's not just talking, he's talking at this point about the difference between Jews and Gentiles, but it's the same argument as what we face today. He says, the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're, not to, we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross, and the cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came in and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals, so to make us equal. Through him, we were both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. What Paul is saying is Jesus fully cleaned the wound of sin on the cross, and now we need to do the work of cleaning the wounds of division. We need to unearth this thing and be healers, and face the dividing wall that can separate us from each other, and take the wall down. That's what God is calling us to do. He's saying, man, I can't have the wall up anymore. I hope that doesn't tip over on them. We gotta, we gotta, he's saying we can't keep living behind the wall. And from here, this is where his prayer of unity comes in. From here, this is where all tribes and and tongues come together and sing. This is the vision Jesus had, not for us to walk with with these walls that we have put up, but that we enter into the stories with each other. From here, we say, your story is actually more important than my story. From here we say, I'm not the king of my kingdom, but you're the king. And I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to do what you are asking me to do. We've got to Sankofa and go back so we can learn on what we've got to do today and tomorrow. Going back to our experience, I, you know, I can unpack all kinds of stuff from our experience, but I'm not going to do that. I'll just going to unpack a couple of places that we went. The first one was we went to a place, we went to Birmingham, Alabama, and we went to the 16th Street Baptist Church where Martin Luther King preached a bunch. And we got to hear from a woman, a, a woman that, that years and years before, she was 16 years old, and she participated in what was called the Children's March. It was a march against equality. Um, Dr. King knew that a bunch of their parents were at work, and so they said, why don't we have the kids come? And so the kids at 11 o'clock in the morning on this March day in 1963 all left school, 4,000 of them from all over the place left school. And they got together at this Baptist church, and they were inspired in their sermon in the church, and then they came out of those steps, walked down the steps and across the street. She said, she said, I wore my best dress. She said, I couldn't wait for this day. To march for what we so believed in. She said, I, I, I wore this dress. I came out of the church. We were so excited together. A bunch of us were together doing this. We walked across the street to the park and we were met with what were called water cannons. They weren't water hoses, they were water cannons. 
She said it tore the dress off of her and what was left of their dress was torn off by the dogs that they sicked on us after that. We're asking her, we got the chance, you talk about proximity and stepping into somebody else's story, we got to ask, ask her, so wh- tell us more about that. And she said, she said, when the cannons would hit my skin, when the dress had fallen off, it felt like it was ripping my skin. We said, what was that like when you came home that night? Were your parents upset that you went that day? And she goes, man, we were all so into what we believed in, equality for everybody, that, we, that, we stepped, that, we, that my parents actually were okay with me doing that. And she said, would you do it again? She said, I did it again, over and over again. Now, what, we got, what I got from her more than anything else in hearing her story was how unbelievably over the top, she, she was praising Jesus throughout her story with us. And you talk about hopelessness when you felt helpless or hopefulness when you felt helpless. She was so hopeful because she knew that this is a gospel message and this is what Jesus wanted. And so she, she speaks of it with such a thankfulness of Jesus walking with her through all of these years of her standing up for equality. Man, we walked away from there just going, man, I, the, the, the inspiration and the beauty of the hope of Jesus. Now, we went to Montgomery, Alabama. We went to some other places. Then we went to Selma. And that's where, that's where for me, it just, it just kicked my butt. We got off the bus in Selma, and, and, and we, we saw the bridge. This was a bridge that, um, that, that they marched across. I didn't know anything about why they marched across, and we learned that they marched across that bridge because they were going 50 miles to Montgomery to protest uh, voter laws. They just wanted the equal right to vote. And to a black person in the 60s, they had to take tests to be able to vote. And those tests were horrible tests that were impossible to pass. They'd ask questions like, how many seeds are in a watermelon? Impossible questions to answer to keep somebody from voting. And so they, they wanted the simple right to vote and so they said, we're going to march to the steps of the state capitol in Montgomery to do it, and we're going to start in Selma. And they went across this bridge. And the movie Selma came out, and, and, uh, and it was really powerful the way they depicted it. I wanted to show you a little piece of that movie, so let's, let's play that. They were young and old, and they carried an assortment of packs, bedrolls, and lunch sacks. The reason why they were carrying bedrolls and lunch sacks is because the trip to Montgomery was going to be days and days. And they're going through some of the worst part, some of the most racist parts of the country. And they knew that this was not going to be good. They knew that this trip, this is the first of three. They knew that this, was gonna, this wasn't going to end well. In fact, Martin Luther King wasn't there for this first trip. Martin Luther King, they had him step back because it was too dangerous. So John Lewis led this march, this first one, with about 600 black people walking over this bridge together. And the bridge itself was the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He is the, he is the uh, Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and they see his name first on that bridge. They know what they're facing. On the other side, when they crest the top of that hill on this side of the bridge, they know that the opposition is waiting for them on the other side. 
There's tons of opportunity for them to turn back. They could turn back right now and say, this isn't worth it. But they're saying, no, 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 I'm gonna keep going. So they face this on the other side. The troopers were waiting 300 yards beyond the end of the bridge. Behind the troopers were dozens of possumen, 15 of them on horses and perhaps 100 white spectators. May we speak with you? Troopers, advance! You can imagine what happened next. John Lewis was the college student in the front. College students that think you, don't, you can't make a difference. John Lewis was a college student in the front leading that march and they got it they got beaten by bats and and everything else and whips and the horses running over them john lewis's head was cracked open but he still was able to to grab onto somebody else and get them back to the church they caught it all on 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 tv they had the news was there and they caught it all on tv and then people started to catch on to what was happening the next day martin luther king led the charge he led the march across that bridge. They, they got up to the top of that bridge not knowing what they're going to face. And they get to the other side and they still face the same, that same opposition. But this time Martin Luther King looked at it and, and just got to, went to a knee. And everybody else that was marching with him went to a knee and they prayed. And they turned around and went back. And then the third time, now this time, the news has gotten around the country and now other people were joining in. It was black and white. It was clergy. It was pastors and priests and, and, and everyone was, there was a lot of people on the bridge the third time. And they got across that bridge and this time they didn't face the opposition and they walked for the 50 miles and got to Montgomery and got to the steps and just said, just give us the equal right to vote. We got a chance to go across that bridge ourselves and they asked us not to take any pictures and they said, they said I want you to, um, I want you to, to just, it, it's holy ground and, and so I want you to just slowly and quietly walk across this bridge and so I did. And normally when I walk, I walk with my head down and, and, and you know, as I'm talking to somebody else, I walk with my head down but this time I walked with my head up the whole time. I just kept looking at the crest of that, of that hill and I'm going, what was it like to walk up that hill and not know what's on the other side or even more know what's on the other side? I looked ahead because I was in the middle of the pack and I was looking ahead at, at, at the people that were leading the walk. And I'm going, what was that like for John Lewis to be leading that walk over that bridge? And the conviction that they had to have to keep going because they could have turned around. I started thinking about it from the point, of, the point of view of somebody in the middle of the bridge, in the middle of that pack, and going, they wouldn't know if I turned around right now, but they didn't. They kept going because they believed in it so much. And they kept walking. And then I started thinking about the third day. 
And I thought, if, if I was, I'm walking up that bridge and I'm thinking, if I was one of those pastors, would I continue to walk? Would I be thinking of Ella and Jack and Maggie and Abby and Jackie and go, I don't know if I'll see them again. Am I that convicted about this? That I'm going to stand with my brothers and sisters and keep walking across this bridge? I tell you what, I got a whole new definition of courage right there from John Lewis and everybody else that walked across that bridge. It was just a definition of courage. And I started thinking to myself back here at home, and I started thinking, I, we, had a, we had some time on the other side of the bridge to just sit and think for ourselves, and I just started thinking, do I have the courage in leading our church to, to, to crest that hill, knowing that some people will leave this church because we are going to stand on racial justice and racial reconciliation? Do I have the courage to still do this? Do we have a, as a church have the courage to step to the other side of the wall, to crest the bridge, to step into history. To say, I need to know the past to understand what we still need to do in the future. Do we have a church, have, have the courage to bury our pretenses and step around the wall and crest it and learn from my brothers and sisters? And learn that for most white people, the story stopped at the Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation. To, but to a black person, there's a century and a half more that we need to learn. But it didn't stop right there. And there's more that we have to d- dive into. Well, I step into the uncomfortable. Well, I step on the bridge. I was listening to a woman talk. She's an African-American woman that's a CEO of a company, and she was doing a TED Talk, and she was saying, what we've got to do together is not be color blind, but be color brave. She said, don't be color blind. Don't be color blind to it all and look, around, look at somebody and say, I don't see color. We don't see that. But she says, because she says, we got to celebrate. Celebrate the diversity. Celebrate the, 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 the different pasts that we have. Celebrate what you bring, what is part of your history. we got to celebrate that within each other. we got to see that color and, and celebrate the color. And at the same time, then, we got to be color brave. We need to be color brave to, to say, I'm willing to be in the conversations. I'm, I'm willing to see that the great kidnapping of Africans um, le- can, might have even led to the, to the incarceration, the mass incarceration issues that we deal with today. We got we to gotta be color brave. And are we willing to open our eyes to the places where there's still inequality? And are we willing to go to the uncomfortable? And listen to this. Are we willing to go to a place where I might be harboring things in my heart that contribute to that inequality. See, this bridge left a lasting impression for me, the bridge at Selma. And it made me think it's not about just tearing down the walls, but it's actually we have got to be the bridge. And the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to stand on the bridge and crest it with courage and step into the questions. Now be careful with your answer. Because you can easily say, well, yeah, of course I am. But be careful. Because if you're going to stand on that bridge, it means when something happens in this country that you're, that you're willing to stand in the pain with someone that might not look like you or subscribe to the ideologies of the politics that you subscribe to. That would be standing on the bridge. Standing on the bridge means you'll see, if you see injustice, you'll speak up. Standing on the bridge means living on the boundaries of your ideas. 
Listen to that. You know what you know, but live on the boundaries of what you know to learn what you don't know. That's standing on the bridge. It means going to uncomfortable conversations where it might reveal a shadow side in you. Standing on the bridge means instead of saying, why in the world are we talking about this in church? You're saying, of course we're talking about this in church. It's absolutely where we need to be talking about it in church. Because if this was on the heart of Jesus, it's going to be on my heart. We have to stand on that bridge. You guys, we don't have a choice if we want to follow Jesus. And somebody will tell me, why did you venture away from Jesus and talk about this this week? And I'll say, if you want to follow Jesus, it has to be on this bridge. It has to. And I asked the question, and this is, what I, this is what I was left with. I asked the question, what if? What if the church became an agent of change for the kingdom? Not my kingdom, but for God's kingdom. What if the church led the charge towards racial equality where every tongue and tribe stand together? What if we did step into the uncomfortable, we saw each other with more compassion, with more understanding, and we saw each other as Jesus does? What if? What if we actually did recognize that he's telling us that what happens on this earth is what's going to happen in heaven? We actually commit our lives to making that happen. This is heavy lifting. And I cannot stand here and just see my brother Maurice say, good, we've got a black pastor on our staff that's gonna lead racial reconciliation. This is heavy lifting for every single one of us. And thank God I have Maurice on my team that champions this charge. But this is a call for every single one of us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that, that we would be a church that we would be a church that isn't afraid of this conversation. That we would be a church that doesn't just check a box and say, well, we talked about it once and then we forget about it. That we would be a church that, that dives into your heart and what your heart beats and that we would want to, want to live in that same place. That we would be a church that be courageous and, and, and not be afraid of offending someone in our conversation. I pray that for people that would say, but I have a past that, that, that is, is a certain way that I, I don't know how I'd even un come close to unpacking that with somebody and that we wouldn't be afraid of unpacking that and we tell our stories. And at the same time, we would lean into somebody else's story. We'd hear it from them. We'd hear it from someone's story and we would lean closer together. God, I pray that we would be a church that would, in the end, step into the kingdom that you have pictured, where all tribes and tongues and races come together in great equality and worship you. 
pray that you would bless our efforts in this church to move in that direction. And if somebody is, is really struggling to get on board, I pray that you'd help them to take a first step. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.